0: We live in an age of endless information. We have access to more information today than at any point in human history. Got a question? You can search the world for answers. Need directions? Maps can lead you just about anywhere. Need to buy something? You can locate it, make your purchase, and have it shipped to you all in a few minutes. But access to all this information doesn't necessarily make us wiser, happier, or provide any deeper meaning in life. The wisest man who ever lived had everything he desired, but came to the conclusion that life without meaning is empty. But a life spent searching for the answers God provides is a life worth living. We've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes together. It is an Old Testament book, but, and it is, it is a book that maybe you don't usually think of when you think of the Old Testament, but it's an amazing book. It is 3,000 years old, this book is. And yet, Solomon, who was so intelligent and he was so wise, this guy Solomon Really hit on the, the deepest questions that people are really asking still today. It's amazing. It's like there's been no time difference between 3,000 years ago and today. He deals with life's biggest questions and he, he comes, he helps us begin finding the answers of those questions. And we've been seeing that. In chapter one, he talked about okay, what is, what is the purpose of life anyway? What is the meaning of life? And helped us get started in answering that question. And in chapter 2 is, how can you have a happiness that is so deep, so strong, so dependable, that no matter what you go through, no matter how hard and bad it is, that joy, that deep happiness will not leave your life. And it was a great, a great time as we walked through what he said, what Jesus said about this thing the Bible calls joy. And how do we grow it in our life? And then last week, we talked about how do we make the most of our time, knowing that all of us have limited time. We have limited years. We're going to come and go off the scene. And how do we make the most of the years, of the time that we have in our life? As I was studying Ecclesiastes and have been for the last couple of months before we started the series and I'm just trying to immerse myself in this book and understand what is he saying, what is he teaching us in the book, I'm going to tell you, I was looking forward to the series because, honestly, I've needed this. I, there's a, a time that all of us need to sort of have a reset and some things sort of recalibrated in our life, and I felt the same way. And I really felt like and still feel like that that the topics that we're dealing with is a great way to start a new year, sort of get going in the right direction with the right emphasis in our life. So we're we're not a bit surprised, are we, that we would come to the next question, and that is, what should be now the focus of my life? Since we've gone through all these issues and questions that Solomon's taught us, what should now be the focus of our life. In reality, Jesus was asked the very same question. He was asked by a guy the same idea, though he used different words. That guy asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And in Matthew 22, Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind That is the first and greatest of the commandments. And the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now look, that guy who asked Jesus the question, what was the greatest commandment? He could have very well said, what now should I focus my life on? And Jesus would have given him exactly the same words. That the focus of our life needs to begin with God. Then in there, it begins. It begins with God. That if you will let life begin with God, your life, if you will let your life begin with God, much of the fog of life will lift. And many of the answers to big decisions will become clearer. And you say, how do you know that, Mark? And the reason is because I've lived this. It has become my personal experience. In these times in which I let God be the very dead center core and I yield my life to Him, I see this happen in my life. In which it doesn't mean I never have fog, it doesn't mean that I, I don't face questions I have no answers for. Yes, I do. But when I experience these moments, I can step back and there is my true north. There is the guide for how I move forward. And that guide for how I move forward, that compass of my life is God because I've allowed him to be the core. And here, here's what I want to say to you. If you will allow him to be your core, you'll be stunned. You'll be stunned that the answers to your life and the the rolling away of the fog that begins to happen in your life will be an amazement because you are allowing God to be the true north, to steer your life. So how do you get there? The first step is this idea, open your heart to know the God who made you. You've got to start at the start. Open your heart to know the God that made you. Now, there's a passage of Scripture that Solomon speaks in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, verses 24 to 26. And I'm going to ask us to read them out loud together. You don't have to stand. You can sit right there where you are. But I'm going to ask you to read them out loud with me uh, together. And you're going to notice the second word says man, a man, but the word actually is meaning a person, a man or woman, a boy or girl. It is including all of us, okay? And so I want us to look at this together, and read it together. Would you do that? Would you help me? Read this verse. There's two cells. This is the first one out loud. Here we go. Start with the word A. Here we go. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the one who pleases God, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the one who displeases God, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to eventually hand it over to the one who pleases God. Now, what Solomon is saying to us in the passage is this, the key to having the wisdom of solving the great problems and difficulties of your life, the key to having the understanding of living life to its best, the key to having the happiness that you desire in your life, it all begins with a growing relationship with God. It all begins there. God is not trying to take away the enjoyment of your life. He's trying to to add to the enjoyment of your life. Give him the opportunity. Turn to God. Now, in order to do that then, how do you come to know the God that made you? You come to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews was not the first book in the New Testament to be written. Most scholars, I think, believe that 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 first book in the New Testament that was written was the book of Galatians by Paul. But the book of Hebrews came very quickly after that. And when you know that the book of Hebrews is a very, very early book, not, not long after the resurrection of Christ, it helps you as you're reading it to see many of the things in Hebrews very differently. For instance, here is one of the earliest books, and I want you to notice how the apostles saw Jesus right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. They never saw Jesus. They didn't see Jesus as just another man. They didn't see Jesus as just some moral teacher. That's not how they saw him. They saw him as the very son of God, the powerful son of God. That's how they viewed him. Now, what happened with the resurrection or leading up to the resurrection is that the disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they still hadn't figured out what Messiah meant, and then the crucifixion happens, the resurrection happens, and they spend 40 days with him after the resurrection. It's not just, okay, one appearance of Jesus and off he goes. He spent 40 days with them, and the Scripture says that he taught them now from a whole different perspective. They saw the resurrected Jesus. And one of the things that he taught them that they came to understand is exactly who is he, the Son of the living God. Now, with that in mind, listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Do you notice the first part of the verse? He says that since we've been made right in God's sight by faith... I guarantee you there's some in this room and you really believe that you become right in God's eyes by living good, by doing good deeds of trying to help people coming to church. If I come to church after a while, God will say, boy, you're really looking good. You are really doing good stuff. And now God will feel better about you. Now you will look right in God's eyes. But here's the truth. There is not anything you and I can do For God to see those things, those good deeds that we do, and us to be made right in God's sight. You and I cannot ever earn our way to heaven. Notice what the verse says it says, We have become right in the eyes of God because of faith. Our faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus came. The disciples came to understand it fully. Jesus came, the Son of God, was in heaven, left heaven, came to the earth, and for one greatest purpose, and that was to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. Because of what you and I have done, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and he rose again from the grave. And now, we come to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, when we, by faith, commit our heart to Him. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. What does it mean When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, every one of us have a throne in our heart. Every one of us have a throne, and we sit on the throne most of the time. But when we come to the place in which we take ourselves off of the throne of our life, and we put Jesus Christ on the throne of our heart, and we say, I confess with my mouth, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. I give the throne of my heart to you. You lead me. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart so much that we commit ourselves to Jesus, we believe in our heart that he rose from the dead. You're saved. You begin this new relationship with God. I know that there are people in this room today and you have not yet taken that first step Maybe you didn't understand it. Maybe you didn't understand what to do. But I hope today before you leave this building that you will go to the next step center. I'll point it out at the end of the message. But the next step center, talk to one of our ministers, and today you would begin a new journey with God. Come to give your heart to him by faith in Jesus Christ. Receive Jesus as your Savior and begin a new relationship with God. Now, Solomon takes us from that point, and he says, now you've begun this relationship. How do you take it to the next step? Learn how to more authentically worship God. That's how we do it. And this is what Solomon is talking about in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and this is where we're going to put most of our time this morning. Learn how to more authentically worship God. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken from it. God does it so people will revere Him. God does not want to be that distant God out in the distance somewhere, He wants to be your heavenly Father. He wants to be everything that a perfect father should be in your life. He wants you to know him and him to know you and have a relationship with him. And in that relationship for you to revere him, the word revere means to worship. We can worship God because he's worthy of our worship, because of who he is and because of what he has done. I know you already know this. I know you already know it, but I'm going to still say it, and it's this. We can worship God any place and at any time. Worshiping God doesn't mean just coming to church on Sunday and we worship God. We're to worship God every day. And we can worship God every day, any place that we are. And the greatest expression of worship is our obedience to God. Every time you choose to obey God, you are worshiping God in the greatest way possible. But now, with that said, God has also told us to come together just like we are today. God has told us to gather together because there is strength. When we come together and we join our voices together in worship of God, there is strength when we come together. And listen to what he says in in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25. Let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. God is saying, I want you to get together on a regular basis like we're doing on Sunday because there is strength in coming together. Now with all of this in mind, listen to what Solomon is going to advise us to now about this time of worship when we gather together. What is this time of worship to be like? Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. What is he saying? Well, the first thing that he's saying is this. When we come before God, come prepared. Come prepared ahead of time to meet with him. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. In other words, when we come to church on Sunday, come prepared already before we get here to worship God. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, that the worship of God is the highest ministry of the church and must come from devoted hearts and yielded wills. And what he's saying is this. Before we come, even to the church, we need to come with our hearts prepared. We need to have a time in which we get things right with God before we get in the car and even come. We need to get right things, get things right in our relationships with others where there is some breaking of relationship between you and somebody else. We need to get those things right before we come so that when we come and worship before the Lord, we worship with a clear heart, with a clear mind. Prepare before you come to worship God. The second thing Solomon is saying is this. When you come to church, come with an attitude. An attitude of humility and awe of God. See what he says in verse 7? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore stand in awe of God. The Puritans in early American history had this saying. They said, think greatly Of the greatness of God and what they meant by that is when we talk to God and when we talk about God do it in the deepest reverence and the deepest awe I want you to know that God is not the big man upstairs I know people use that phrase, and sometimes we're just taught, to, or we heard somebody else say it and thought it was kind of neat. I know that, and I know that many people that use the phrase "the big man upstairs," they don't mean any disrespect in their heart up to God. but I want you to know that God is not the big man upstairs. He's not a man, and that phrase is not worthy. Who God is is the great I am. Who he is is the ruler of heaven and earth. Who he is is the king of kings and the lord of lords. That who is who he is. That's who he is. And what the puritans were saying is that when you come before God, when you speak to God, and when you talk about God, do it in the highest of honor to him. The highest of praise to Him. We're to come before God with awe and wonder. We're not in awe of this building. We're not in awe of anybody that's here. We are in awe of God. We don't gather to be entertained. We don't gather here to be pacified. We gather here to honor the name of the Lord God. Who saved us and changes is changing us. That's why we gathered here. Solomon said, "God is in heaven and we are on earth. We ought to hold him in awe." One of my favorite presidents, one of the guys that I wish I would could have known, but it was way too early. President Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. He became president in the early 1900s. In fact, he was the vice president and the president was shot and killed and he became the president. And then he went on to another term. I have a great respect for Teddy Roosevelt. Here's a picture of Teddy Roosevelt right there. And I have a great respect for him because first of all, what he overcame in his life to become president because of the character by which he operated his life even against the pressure of others because he was a man of such integrity and character. But third of all, because more than maybe most presidents or maybe just a handful of presidents were like him, he was truly for the the little guy. He truly fought against people that were were, uh, bringing injustice to the little guy, and I really respect him for that. A little bit of it also is because of the bombastic personality of Teddy Roosevelt. Here's a picture of Teddy Roosevelt. And if you'd have known him, this is what you'd see a whole lot. The guy, was he was Mr. Personality. And one historian said it this way, Teddy Roosevelt is the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Does that sound weird to you? But what the person meant was, it didn't make any difference who the bride was at the wedding when Teddy Roosevelt arrived in the room all the attention went to him. didn't matter who was in the, the, the casket. If he went to a funeral, all the attention went. He walked into the room, and there was this bombastic Mr. Personality guy, and all the attention went to him, and I think he loved every second of it. But he was just a bombastic guy. There's another reason, and that was he truly loved God. He truly loved God. He made the statement At his inaugural address, I reverently invoke for my guidance the direction and favor of Almighty God, and he meant it. It is told about him that when people would go to the White House and they would spend the night in the White House as guests of the Roosevelt's, that every time, every night that there were guests in the White House, that he would take the guest outside at night to the backyard of the White House. I don't usually think of the backyard of the White House. But he would take him to the backyard of the White House, and there he would talk about how big God is and the majesty of God looking up at the stars and all the universe out there. And then he would ask people if they would just, just in silence just stand there and look at the universe for a little while. And then when it was done, he said, okay, I believe we're all small enough now. Let's go to bed. In other words, we shouldn't go to bed until we have first recognized in a fresh new way, this is a great God. This is a big God, the God of the universe that we serve. Worship is holding God in awe. Third, worship is an opportunity to be reminded of who God is and to let God know that we love him. I love the worship at Sugar Creek. I mean, don't you? I mean, I love the worship here. I love the I love first service and the hymns, the old hymns. They feed my soul. I love those hymns. I love the second and third service and the contemporary music. I love it. It feeds my soul. I get I get to do what None of you get to do, I get to come to three services. And I get to all the different kinds of music, and it feeds my soul. I love our worship leaders here. I work with these guys. I rub shoulders with these guys all week long. I know who these guys are. And I want you to know they're the real deal. What when they lead us in worship, they really mean that. They are really living that, they really do love the Lord. I love Tony Price. I I respect this man who leads our worship ministry. I respect him. He, He is one of the best mentors of young men. He is one of the best mentors and one of the best leaders I've ever encountered in ministry. I love the worship of this church. But now having said that, I want to say this. But the worship of this church's goal is not to please me. And the goal of the worship of this church isn't to please you. Because you and I are not the object of the worship. The whole idea of the worship of this church is to please God. Because God is the object of the worship. And we... We're not the evaluators of the worship. We're the participants. We're not the evaluators. Well, let's see. Did we get an A in worship today or did we get a B? That isn't us. That's not our job. We are the participants, and God is the object, and God is the evaluator of the worship. And by the way, he's not just evaluating the guys on the platform. He's evaluating me and you when we worship. Is our worship coming from a true heart? Are we hypocrites? And this is what Solomon was talking about when he said in Ecclesiastes 5.1, guard your steps when you come to the house of the Lord. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, of acting like you're one thing when you're not, and you know good and well that tomorrow you'll be a different person. No, he is saying... When you come to my house, I want you to get your act together, and I want you to be authentic. I want you to be genuine, and I want your life to be changed. How do we know when we have truly worshipped God? Well, now we got to go to the New Testament to get that question answered, and we go to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and listen to what he says. Don't be drunk with wine because it will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control you. And when the Holy Spirit is controlling your life, what will happen? Then you will sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts. And you will always give thanks for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And further, you will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what he's saying? When you are really engaging God in worship, three things are going to happen. He says that all three. First of all, worship involves singing. Now, you know what? We can worship in far more ways than just singing, and the greatest worship is obedience, but worship does include singing. Worship does include singing. I know that there are some who come to worship and they think to themselves, I, I am terrible. I'm a terrible singer. I can't carry a tune. But let me tell you something. The probably worst singer that has ever lived is my, was my dad. He could not carry a tune to save his life, and he knew it. And when you were standing beside him and he was singing, you're thinking, what song is he on? It's not this one. <laughs> I... But he knew that he was totally tone deaf. He he was totally tone deaf. But I want to tell you, when you are standing next to him, he is singing for all he's worth. And he already knows he can't carry a tune, and he doesn't care because singing to the Lord means I love God. I'm not auditioning for you, okay? I am singing to the Lord. And he sung because he loved God, my dad. He sung to the Lord. My dad's in heaven right now. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find out. First thing I'm going to find out is, is he right? He was hoping, you know, with the, the Scripture says that when you get to heaven, the last will be first, first, last. He figured when he gets to heaven, he'll be the best singer in heaven because the last will be first. And I'm going to see if that really ha- actually happened. He already knew he couldn't sing very well. He didn't care. And, in fact, he so loved God, he couldn't stay silent he couldn't stay silent. And here's what I want to say to you. Please, don't just stand there and watch other people worship because, hey, I can't carry a coon. I'm not a good singer. We don't care. What we care about is you praising God. It's the only thing that really matters. When I was growing up, uh, the, the, the guys growing up always heard the same thing. You maybe have heard it too, that You know, singing's for the girls, and real men don't sing. Real men just stand there. Well, actually, singing is not just for the girls. People who know Jesus and love Jesus and want to express that love to Jesus, they're the ones that sing, males and females. And so here's what I'm going to ask. Look, I get it, and you may just blow me off on this, but I'm going to say to dads, to the dads, I just want to say to the dads, even if you don't feel like you're that great of a singer, I wish you still would sing. Because there are eyes watching you. you got little guys watching you, and you know what? You're their hero. You really are. Now, one day you won't be. There will be teenagers, and that'll, all that hero stuff will be gone. But while you still can be, you are their hero. And they need to see their hero modeling, because you don't want them to model just quietness while other people are praising God. One of the things that happens in worship is we sing. The second thing, worship involves gratitude, Ephesians 5.20, and you will always give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says that when we worship God, something happens, something changes on the inside of us. I'll just admit to you that there's are some times I come to church, I've had a really tough week. I have had a not so great week. I've had times in which I don't even want to sing because I feel all of that pull against it. And maybe that's how you feel sometimes. But I still sing I still praise, and sometimes what happens in us is that when we still sing and we still praise God and we don't feel like it, what happens is is that when we are praising, all of a sudden the words we speak get into our heart and start, start changing how we feel. We he wants us to speak. Oh, I praise him with my heart. I just praise in my heart. Well, I'm great. I'm glad you do. But he's also talking about praising with our lips because there is something powerful that happens when we speak these words. Oh God, you are a great God, and oh God, you heal my sicknesses and you solve my issues and you are the power of my life and you change my world. And oh God, I love you and I adore you and I I. Will worship you. When these words come out of our mouths, they are powerful words that affect our heart. They do And so he is saying to us, I want you to sing these words. I want you to say these words out loud because what happens is that as we are singing these words, it suddenly begins to dawn on us these words are really right. He is a great God. He does solve our problems. He is with me. He will walk through these days with me. He is a mighty God. I do love him. And what happens is it begins to change our heart. So you sing. With faith you sing even though you don't feel it. You sing with faith, and what happens is it changes you on the inside. All of a sudden, you begin to have a sense of thanksgiving when you didn't have it before. And that's why he's saying you become filled with the Holy Spirit of God. What happens is that one of the things happens is that you begin to thank God for everything. You begin to see somehow God is good in the midst of even the bad things that are going on in your life. Nancy Ortberg wrote this book called Looking for God, and she's a registered nurse and a godly woman, and she wrote this book, and here's one of her stories. She said, one of my earliest patients was a young girl of about 14 who had been on a dirt bike accident. And I met this young girl down in the physical therapy department. She was in a whirlpool bath. I had read her chart before I went down to work with her and had learned that as a result of the accident... Her leg had been amputated below the knee. I couldn't imagine what it must be like to be a 14 year old girl with part of your leg missing. I introduced myself and we made some small talk, and through the course of our time together, I learned that she is a Christ follower. I was not prepared for her spirit. Especially when she lifted her freshly amputated leg up above the bubbling water for me to see and said, look how much I have left. She actually, or excitedly, told me that since the doctors were able to amputate below the knee, it was much easier to fit prosthesis. She wondered how long it would take to heal so that she could get started with that. I heard most of what she was saying, but I wasn't really paying much attention. My mind was fixed back on, look how much I have left. Her gratitude was genuine. It wasn't denial. It wasn't Pollyanna mentality. She knew she was missing a good part of her leg, and she wouldn't have chosen that. But she was so very thankful for this bit of good news. Her spirit made my spirit soar that day, and I had two good legs. When we worship, it actually brings us the ability to thank God for everything. And verse 21 says, Worship involves an improved relationship with each other. Ephesians 5.21, and further, you will submit to one another out of reverence for God. And what he's saying in the verses, when we worship God, he so changes our heart, we actually get along with other people better. This is what this worship time means. This is why it's so powerful and so important to us. One more thing I want to say and I'm done. Be careful. Going back to to Ecclesiastes 5, one more point. Be careful of what you promise God. Solomon says this in chapter 5 verse 4 to 6, when you make a vow to God don't delay in in following through with it for God takes no pleasure in fools. Keep all the promises you make to Him it's better to say nothing than to make a vow and not keep it. Don't let your mouth make you sin, and don't defend yourself by telling the temple messenger who today it's a pastor. By telling the pastor that the promise you made was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? A vow, he's talking about making a vow, and a vow is a pledge, it is a promise to God. Have you ever made a vow? If you've gotten married, you have Because in your marriage ceremony, you made a vow to your spouse in the eyes of God, and it was even said that way, in the hearing of God. So, how are you doing with that vow? And what Solomon is saying is that I'm not telling you not to ever make a vow, I'm saying you be careful when you do. Don't make promises to God that you aren't going to keep. You grow in your relationship with God by getting started at the very beginning by receiving Jesus as your Savior and then growing in your authenticity of worship. Do you know Jesus? Have you given your heart to Him? If you haven't, you can today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your Word and how practical it is in our lives. And Father, we, we pray that you would take this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and burn it in our heart and continue to feed us and teach us with it and help us all week long to grow in our walk with you and our worship, authenticity of our worship with you. Now, Father, I pray for those in this room that have never accepted Jesus, but today is the day, the day. God, I pray that they would give their heart to Jesus Christ today. And, Father, for people in this room that are visiting this church, not members, but today is the day of joining becoming a part of Sugar Creek. Bless them and lead them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.